I heard a story this past week of, of a guy named Danny who's at college and his, his mother wanted to come visit him. Danny had just moved in with this girl named Allison. His mother was concerned about this. But he said, no, don't worry. We're just friends. It's a two-bedroom apartment. It's, it's completely platonic. We're just doing it to save money. It's just for rent. No big deal. But Danny's mom thought, there's no way this can be true because I've seen this girl and she is beautiful. And I know my son and that just doesn't seem kosher there. Like there's got to be something else going on. But Danny assured her and says, no, no, no. I swear we're just friends trying to save some money. So mom came over for dinner one night. And as they were eating dinner, mom looked at Allison and saw her watch and was like, Allison, I love that watch. I've wanted one like it for a really long time. Can I see it? Allison takes off the watch and hands it to her, and they move on. A couple days go by, and Allison comes to Danny, and she says, You know, Danny, I can't find my watch. And the last time I had it was when your mom was looking at it. Now, I would never accuse her of stealing it, but maybe you could just check with her and just see. Like, maybe she just forgot to give it back. Maybe it dropped into her purse. I don't know. Just maybe you could check with her. So Danny sent his mom an email. The email says, Dear Mom, obviously I'm not stating that you took the watch, but the fact remains that the watch is missing and you were the last one who had it. A couple of days go by. Danny's mom emails him back and she says, Dear Danny, obviously I'm not saying that you were sleeping with Allison, but the fact remains that had she been sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the watch on her pillow right where I left it. I don't even really know if that story is true or not. I just found it. Uh, but I thought it was a really great introduction for this sermon today. Because Danny was caught. And this is something maybe a lot of us can have the idea of. And this is going to be kind of the theme for today. is just sin and forgiveness and being caught. And so today we will find ourselves in Psalm 51. And you can head over there. But before we dig into Psalm 51, in order to truly understand the heart cry of David in this psalm... We have to know the backstory. So Psalm 51 is David's heartfelt response to being caught in his own sin. The historical story of David's sin can be found in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. Now, I'm not going to read that whole section there for you. Um, but of course, I'd encourage you to go read it. I'm just going to kind of fly over it. But I'd encourage you to go read through it. And in fact... Depending on where you were at in the Bible reading, the, the summer Psalms reading plan, depending on when you started and if you're keeping up, no judgment, I've slipped a few days here or there too, but depending where you're at and where you started, it's possible that Psalm 51 is either today or tomorrow for you. And I didn't even plan that out, I just happened to look at it and was like, oh, wow, that's neat. So maybe it's something as you read through Psalm 51 when you get to it, you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 with it just to kind of get that full understanding. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 tells us the story of David and Bathsheba, which many of you may be familiar with. The story tells us of King David lusting after a young woman. He's up on his rooftop and he sees this beautiful young woman bathing across the rooftops. And he lusts after her and he calls for her and he has an adulterous affair with her. See, David and Bathsheba were both married at the time of the affair, but David uses his power and his influence to seduce and take advantage of this woman. Then, Bathsheba becomes pregnant from this affair. 
So David, in an attempt to cover up his sin, has her husband Uriah. He's at war, technically where David should be as well, because he's the king. The king should be with his men at war, but he's not. He's back at home. David's, or Uriah's off at war, so he calls for Uriah to come home, hoping that while Uriah is home, he would lay with his wife. Uriah doesn't. So then David's like, okay, what am I going to do? I'll get him drunk tonight. And hopefully when he gets drunk, then he'll go sleep with his wife. Uriah, you only meet him for like one chapter, and he only has a couple of lines, but he shines in these stories as this man of integrity. He has this quote, he's like, I could never do this. I could never lay with my wife while my men, my co-soldiers are off in the battle. So he sleeps outside of his house. So David's all frustrated and doesn't really know what to do. So he develops a new plan. See, the commander of David's army is one of his best friends. So he sends Uriah back to war, and he tells the commander, Joab, send Uriah to the front lines, and right when the war is raging, right when it's at its worst, pull back all of the rest of the army, leave Uriah out there by himself. Joab, being his friend, says, okay, and he does it. Uriah is left out there by himself and is killed in battle. David makes himself look like the man, like the best man here. Like he's like, well, I'll just swoop in now to this poor widow and I'll marry her to help her and I'll raise this child as my own and pretend like nothing ever happened. Affairs, drunkenness, deceit, and murder. As good as any Hollywood movie, right? But this is the truth. This is God's word. But that's not the end of the story. David's other friend, Nathan, who's the prophet has the truth revealed to him, and he goes and confronts David. I'm not going to give any more of this away so that you have to go and read it, but Nathan's confrontation and the way he convinces David to admit to his sin is incredible. So David finally admits his sin, sin, and the Psalm 51 is the result of that. So follow along as I read. I'll just read through the whole thing to start here. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. The bowls will be offered on your altar. This is a penitential psalm. Penitential psalms are ones that are written in order to deal with sin and forgiveness. These are, there's a deep sense of sorrow in these psalms surrounding the sinfulness that is in their lives. A true understanding of the filth that is surrounding the people who wrote these. The main theme of this penitential psalm is repentance. And we can see that David has three specific requests for God as we work through this. In verses 1 through 7, we can see that David is asking God, cleanse me. Cleanse me, O Lord. David's very first words, have mercy on me. This mercy is not attached to anything that David has done. I loved what Josh said. The mercy that God is going to pour out on David has nothing to do with David and anything good that he has done or is going to do. This is a plea from David knowing the depths of his sinfulness. And it is according, it says, to God's unchanging love. David knew that he could receive forgiveness for these sins, but only because how good and holy and perfect God was. Verse 4 is one that has always and still, every time I read this verse, this psalm, it just jumps out to me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Every time I read that, I'm like, are you serious, David? I think there's a pregnant woman with a, with a dead husband who's feeling the effects of your sin right now. I think there's a nation of Israel who has looked up to you to be their leader who is going to feel the effects of your sin now. How in the world, David, can you say only against God have I sinned? David is not trying to say that he hasn't sinned against people. He understands that. He simply is stating that his sin, although against people, the, the, the most heinous part about it is that it is against God's perfection and his holiness. Now, if we can start to see our sin in this light, it will drastically change who we are. That is what repentance is. Repentance is not just simply saying, I'm sorry, I messed up, I'll try not to do it again. Repentance is, is drastically changing the course of our life. It's going to work on our sinful hearts and trying to align it more with God's ways and God's hearts and following him. It's turning from our sin and following God. We can become very critical. I know I can. I can for sure become very critical as I read through the Bible. And I read men that screw up in the Bible. Right? Like I read these stories and I say, David, what were you doing? You had everything going for you. God had blessed you so much. And you do this. You knew better. But to David's credit, he did recognize how horrendous his sin was. He didn't blame anyone else. 
And he begs for forgiveness when he is confronted with it. And it's, it's easy for me to look at David's life and say this, but it doesn't take long for me to look at my own life and say, Joey, what did you do? You've been blessed so abundantly. You should know better. We can see a pattern in these first seven verses. A pattern for David's request for cleansing. First, he, he asked for mercy. And then he asked for the cleansing from the guilt. And then he's authentic. He's open and honest and raw and says, yes, this is what I've done. I'm, I'm wicked. I was born into this. He realizes how perfect and holy God is. And then he understands, he realizes that sin is not just something he has done, but it is part of his very nature. That idea of sin being part of our nature points us to something important. God, David's words about being born into sin shows us that he truly understands the belief of total depravity. Total depravity means that we as humans are absolutely corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall. That we are born into sin. It is not just something we learn to do, but part of our very being, part of who we are. What total depravity doesn't mean, because that sounds really bad, right? You're like, wow, like that's harsh. Well, what total depravity doesn't mean is that we commit the most evil possible, right? We, clearly, we all know that we are not committing the most evil that we possibly could. Like, I may at least have thoughts, but at least I'm not acting on some of these thoughts. At least I'm not saying everything that I want to. I say more than I should, but I don't say everything that I want to say at times. Like, I, there is some restraint. So how, do, how can you say I'm totally depraved? What total depravity means is that apart from the work of Christ on the cross, we have nothing good in us. Besides from the the Holy Spirit filling us and empowering us, there is nothing good in us. The Bible says that even our good deeds are filthy rags before the holiness of God. Total depravity means that sin has touched every aspect of our life and this world. We live in a sinful world. We can see from this psalm, and even the rest of David's life, though, that he is forgiven. We can know that. David is forgiven of this sin. But we need to understand that forgiveness does not automatic, or does not ever probably mean forgetting. We can be forgiven, but it doesn't mean our sins are forgotten. There are always lasting effects for our sins. For David, this was many areas of his life that the sin in his life was not forgotten. Before this event in 2 Samuel 11, David seems to be the picture of perfection, right? He defeats Goliath and he is referred to as a man after God's own heart. As a young man, he is anointed to be God's chosen king. When he's on the run from Saul and he has the opportunity to seek his vengeance, he doesn't take it. He says, how could I do that? How could I go against God's chosen king? Even if he's tried to kill me, I could never do that. He's constantly seeking after God, and God seems to bless everything that he does. But after this instant, in 2 Samuel 11, we see a drastic change in David's life. And his life, although he is now constantly still pursuing after God, his life is marked with struggles. 
His family just seems to go chaotic at this point. Brothers killing other brothers, adultery, and all sorts of craziness from his family. One son, Absalom, even attempts to try to overthrow him and does for a few years. David has to go on the run while his son rules on the kingdom. Towards the end of his life, he calls for a census to be taken over Israel. And that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Like, well, he just wanted to know how many people were in Israel. And the problem with the census was that it was because of David's own pride. Something that we saw, didn't see before this point in his life. He was humble and he was obedient to God. And now later on in his life, he's, this pride is welling up on him and God punishes them for it. Because God never told him to take this census. He just wanted to brag about how mighty his country was. And even at the end of his life, when God clearly states, your son Solomon will be the next heir, the next in line after me, or after you, David, another son tries to swoop in and usurp the throne as well. Constant turmoil within his family and within the country. Now, David's not alone in this experience of forgiveness, not equating forgetfulness. Moses was forgiven for smacking the rock and doing it inappropriately. He was forgiven of that and was continued to lead Israel through the wandering, but he wasn't allowed to go into the Holy Land because of his sin. Adam and Eve were forgiven from eating from the tree, but they were still kicked out of the garden. Paul was forgiven for years of hunting and killing Christians, but potentially never regained his eyesight after he was blinded on the Damascus Road. And what about us? What about this idea of forgiveness does not equate forgetfulness? Well, I wanted to add, there's, we could go any way with this, right? But I wanted to add a little not as intense analogy. So I instantly thought of the idea of a speeding ticket. Right? If I leave today and I get a speeding ticket, I get pulled over for speeding on the way home, which is possible. Um, <clears throat> is Ryan working today? Yeah, okay, yeah. So... <laughs> If I get pulled over on the way home for speeding, I can tell the cop, I'm really sorry I wasn't paying attention, I was in a hurry. And he can say, I forgive you, but he's still probably going to write me a ticket. Then I'm going to go home and tell my wife, once again, I've done this, I've gotten another speeding ticket, I'm so sorry. She hopefully will, she will, she'll forgive me. They can forgive me for these things, and even then I can pay my fines. Okay, now with, against the court, I am forgiven. My sins are paid for, right? But it still hurts my family. It still goes on my permanent record. My wife is just going to be constantly waiting for the next time it's going to happen. The cops are going to be constantly waiting for the next time I go zipping past because it's not forgotten. We can receive forgiveness for anything we have done, but we need to remember that nothing is hidden from God. And our lives must acknowledge that truth. And we must understand that once we are forgiven, there are still consequences for the mistakes that we have made. Next, in verses 8 through 12, we can see David asks God, restore me. David is asking God to bring him back to a place he was before his sin. And this is not a, a physical place. Like, he's not technically asking, God, save my life or, or let me continue being king. This is a spiritual request that David is asking. The reality is that David clearly understood the commands of the Old Testament. He knew that the punishment for his sin was that he should not only lose the kingdom, 
not be king anymore, but also that the Old Testament law clearly says that the punishment for adultery and murder is death. This is the punishment, and David knows it. And David has already seen this in his life. He has seen King Saul before him, who was chosen by God, but yet God, but Saul went after his own desires and his, followed his own pride. And God punishes him, takes the kingdom away from him, takes his spirit away from him. And eventually Saul dies a horrific death because of the sinfulness of his life. One commentary I read said that the depth of self-knowledge that was seen in verses 3 and 5 could have led to despair. Right? David could have stopped right there and just been sorrowful over his sin. Like, God, I am so wicked. There's no hope for me. Just kill me, God. Many of us tend to stay there, though. We can acknowledge our sin and we despair over it, but we just stop there. We just live in this sense of despair. God, there's no hope for me. I've done it again. God, just smite me. Like, there's no hope. But yet, David didn't. David understands his sinfulness. He grieved it. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that's not the end of our story. Just asking for forgiveness. We, as followers of Jesus, now need to know and obey Jesus and walk in that every day. David's clarity of sin has caused his prayers to grow. And with his words in verse 10, asking God to create in me a new heart, David is asking for nothing short of a miracle. He sees that the restoration that he is asking for is something that only God can do. This is not David just pulled himself up by his bootstraps and started trying harder. No, he knows. I'm wicked and only because of God can I be cured and healed. He is begging God not to just forgive him, but to completely forget his sins. Hide your face from my sins. Restore me to the place of walking with you again. He asked God to continue to fill him with his Holy Spirit and to bring back the joy that he once had that he only found in God. Author Lydia Brownback, um, author of the devotional that some of our women are reading through, a Psalms devotional, um, she says, a hallmark of all true repentance is a desire for God himself more than a desire for relief from sin's consequences. Yes, God often works through sin's sad consequences to reshape our lives. In the end, David was given much more than he deserved. Not only did God forgive him, but he allowed him to continue to live out the rest of his life as king of Israel, and he died a natural death at an old age. David was given more than he deserved because of his true repentance before God. Now, it's easy to read this story in this psalm and assume that if we are truly repentant, we will not receive any judgment, right? Like, well, David, he should have experienced all of this, but he got to keep everything that he wanted, so we should too. But again, we need to remember that restoration does not automatically mean reinstation, just because we've been restored in God's eyes, it doesn't mean that we will automatically get back the privilege and position that we had before our sin. There are sins in this world that if we commit, there are certain things we won't be able to do anymore. 
just because of whatever we have done. Some of you have experienced that. You know, legally, there are repercussions and consequences that will stay with forever. And other times, just, just all of a sudden, it's like, no, I can't do this anymore because of what my past was. An analogy that I thought of for this, actually, I'm going to give credit where credit's due because I don't often use sports analogies. It's not just really who I am. Matt's the sports guy. So Andrea actually had the thought when we were talking through this. And she instantly thought of like the home run race years ago, right? When everyone's trying to break all the home run records. And this just shows how much I even know about this. I thought it was Mark McGuire who had it, but thankfully Matt was able to correct me and say, no, no, it was Barry Bonds. But even then, it's like you got Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and Sammy Sosa, right? For years, they were chasing this home run record. And it was so exciting. I actually, as soon as he told me, I was like, yeah, I remember that now. I remember hearing that tonight it could be happening. I remember turning on the TV and watching Barry Bonds hit this home run and break the record. And the crowd erupting and everyone being so excited. It was incredible to see. But then what happened? A few years later, it starts coming out. That they were all using steroids, right? If you look in the record books, their names are still in there at the top. Because they broke the record. They hit this many home runs. But next to their names are these little asterisks. And then below it, you know, says something like, use performance-enhancing drugs. It is potential that no one will ever break the records that they set. Their names will forever be in the record book but it will also forever have an asterisk next to it. Their sins, and I'm sure many of them were like, yeah, I'm sorry, it was a mistake, I shouldn't have done it. They can be forgiven, but it will never be forgotten. David clearly understands that true restoration and repentance only comes from God's forgiveness. Finally, in verses 13 through 19, we can see David's final request for God. He says, use me, God. How God uses David is directly connected to the joy that we ended the last section with. Philippians 4.4 commands us to rejoice in God. Rejoice in God. This is a command, though, not just simply to have an emotion, right? Like, don't just muster up some joy. Be happy. That's not what God is saying. It is to remind ourselves of everything that we have in Jesus. And the awesomeness of his glory should break into our hearts and start cleaning up the sinfulness in our life. We cannot be used by God unless it is the overflow of the joy that he has placed in our hearts. We are overflowing with the joy of knowing that we are God's possession bought at a great cost. David is focused on this for the rest of his life. David was used incredibly by God. Even after this, even with all the mess in his family, God, or David wrote many more psalms. He prophesied. He led the nation of Israel to be victorious over their enemies. He even set his son Solomon up for years of peace after he died. Before that, Israel, all they had known was war and fighting. And after David died, Solomon experienced unparalleled peace. Verse 15 is the climax of this psalm. David's ultimate goal is not simply to be restored for himself or for his own pride. It's not just, God, restore me. I've got so much more to do, God. You can use me, God. I'm a good person. 
He has no desire. It has nothing to do with it. His goal is that God should be praised through everything that has happened to him. David would spend the rest of his life declaring the praise of God's unimaginable love, his forgiveness, and his redemption. Our usefulness is dependent on our authenticity. David wrote this psalm, and God allowed it, placed it in his scripture, knowing that it would be recorded for all time to be a blessing to it. God knew as these were being recorded that we would be sitting here today reading this. And that whenever we get to these stories, they should be a blessing to us knowing like, yes, this is the depths of the sin, but this is the greatness of God's glory and forgiveness. When we have truly overcome the sins in our life, when God has redeemed us from the pit, when we experience that overwhelming forgiveness, we need to be willing to talk about it. Andrea and I often share the the struggles of our past and even the struggles that we may be currently going through. This is not to glorify the sinfulness and the sins of the past, but it's to point to how awesome God is and, and how living a life following him can lead to true peace and joy only through him. Theologian Samuel Nagawi, professor at the Nairobi Evangelical School of Theology in Kenya, says that the sin that we have all committed cannot be undone, but it must be turned into an opportunity to build the kingdom of God. We need to be authentic and open about the sinfulness in our life. Something that I noticed when I read through this psalm, this time that I hadn't always noticed before, and then reading it with Second Samuel also, it came to me that David's repentance was connected to accountability. See, Nathan was David's friend. But he was also God's chosen prophet, the spokesperson for God in Israel. I think it could have been really scary for Nathan to confront David, especially knowing he was on this trajectory of lying and murder and adultery. Like, if that was me, I'd be like, God, do you really want me to go confront this guy who just did all of this mess? Like, uh, he's, what if he just kills me to continue hiding it? What's stopping him from doing this? He hasn't stopped doing anything else. But Nathan spoke truth because he knew that it was right. And he also knew he had that relationship with David, that he could go to him and be honest in a heartfelt plea to David. This wasn't just coming to him and and criticizing him. How dare you? Condemning him for the sins in his life. Nathan goes to him as a friend, begging him, pleading him. David, this is what you've done. This This is wrong. You need to turn from this. And because of that, because of the relationship they had, David was able to hear it, hear this as love that this man was coming to him with, not condemnation. And he was willing to say, you're right. I've messed up so much. God, forgive me. This psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus, yet it is loaded with prophetic language pointing us to him. Create in me a new heart. Let the bones that are broken rejoice. Sinners will return to you. Deliver me. All of those point us to a hope that can only be found in Jesus. But the clearest picture of Jesus that we can see in this psalm is in verses 16 and 17. 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David is writing this from an old covenant mentality. His entire forgiveness system is based on burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's all he should have known. Right? Like, that's everything that he knows. We, if we want forgiveness, we have to sacrifice this and burn this offering. That's how we receive forgiveness. Yet God has revealed something deeper to him. God has revealed the future hope of a Messiah, the hope of Jesus and his full forgiveness. And David is saying, you know what? If I could just give you a sacrifice, if I could bring an offering in and be cleansed of this, I would do it. And as we read this, which one of us wouldn't say that, right? Like, if I looked at my sinfulness and I knew I could just bring in a calf today and slaughter it on the altar and all my sins would be forgiven, like, who wouldn't line up with calves out the door, right? But that's not what God is asking for. It's something deeper. David knows that the sacrifice and the offerings are nothing compared to our repentance and our humility, our brokenness in the face of our sin. This is what we need to understand if we want to be used by God. To be broken and humble when we are either caught or convicted of our sin. Now, although we don't all sin to this extent, many of us go through this process, right? Hopefully we don't always have to be caught in our sin. I pray that I and all of you can can let God's word convict us. And yes, that is a type of catching us potentially. Like it's God catching us in it. But I pray that we don't always have to be like having our friends and our neighbors come to me like, Hey, you said you're a Christian. And what about all this stuff that you're doing and saying? Like, I hope that we all can let God's word start to convict us and cause us to look into our hearts and assess our actions and our thoughts. And when we are confronted with these sins, either from someone who loves us or through God's word or the Holy Spirit convicting us, we need to start with David's words. Cleanse me, Lord. Have mercy on me. But, but don't just stay there. We must move to the point of asking God to restore us to the joy we had in him before we slipped. And then for him to use us and to use the brokenness in our lives to bring people to know him through our mistakes and the forgiveness that is offered to us. So I want to end our time and ask, what secret sins are you hiding in your life? What things are you wrestling with and trying to overcome? None of us are free from this. No matter what it is, no matter how small we may feel that the sins are in our life, to how big they are, what is it that we're trying to hide and keep from people? If you're anything like me, you don't have to search your heart very hard to find the sins that need to be brought to the light. You've probably even been sitting here already thinking and pondering about them. Thinking through like, yeah, this isn't great. And this is my thing that I need to be crying out to God with. So while I pray, I'm going to give some moments of silence. Some time for you to talk to God yourself. Time for you to bring confession to him. Turning to him, asking you to asking him to cleanse you, to restore you, to use you. And then when we are done, 
it may be possible that you need to go to somebody, right? Like David, just because David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, it doesn't mean that he didn't ask for forgiveness from Bathsheba and others that he may have hurt. We don't have that, but I'm assuming he probably did. Maybe for you, to, maybe in order for you to start the process of repentance, you need to go to the person that you have hurt. Maybe it's your spouse or a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker. Whoever it may be, going to that person just saying like, you know what, I've done some stuff and I know I've probably hurt you. Forgive me for the things that I've said or the things that I've done. As I pray, the worship team is going to come up. And we're going to sing Scandal of Grace. That is what this psalm points us to. That even though we deserve death and separation from God because of our sins, God sent his only son to die for us. It's too much to make sense of it. God's grace is scandalous from a worldly perspective. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this psalm. God, I pray that we can let your word convict us. God, I pray that you can put people in our lives that can speak truth into us from a place of love and that we can take a posture of humility when someone comes to us with a concern, just like David did. So God, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone here. God, help us to bring these sins to the light. Help us to let your word shine a light on the sins in our life. God, whatever it is that they're wrestling with, help them to confess that to you. God, it's really easy when we bring this confession for us to feel the weight of our sins and for us to just sit in it. And and that's okay. We need to sit in our sinfulness from time to time and just take the weight of your perfection and your holiness and let that wash over us. But God, that is not the end of the story. You love us and you sent your son to wash us clean. So God, I pray I pray that you can restore us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray that you can use each and every one of us. Help us all to ask to be used now, to cleanse us, to restore us. God, you are so good. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' beautiful name I pray. Amen.